Welcome to Literary Friction. I'm Octavia Bright and I'm here fighting the good fight against the January blues by basically just agonising over whether to buy a leopard print coat um, today. That's been <laughs> the thought I woke up with um, to lift my spirits because I just, these relentlessly grey days, I feel like all I want is glamour. I think I'm reacting against the last two years and I'm ready. I want like the glitz and the glamour and the glitter. I want to wear high heels. I want to be glamorous and gorgeous all the time. I mean, I'm, I say this sitting in my pyjamas <laughs> and also I'm saying it's grey and actually this morning it's finally blazing sunshine. So maybe this yearning for the coat will pass, but I think I might just buy it. I don't know. Anyway, hi, Carrie. No, I want, <laughs> hi. <laughs> I want this glamour for you and I don't care what the skies look like. I think go for the coat, you know? Okay. A I'm going to buy it, it works in, in sun, it works in shade, it works in rain, snow. That's true. I mean, I don't know in the rain because this is slightly like faux fur, so oh, it might okay. be a maybe bit not. of a drowned With rat. an umbrella. With an yeah. umbrella. In fact, I probably have to buy a very glamorous umbrella yes. to go with a glamorous coat. Yeah. Very important that you do that. And I will move everywhere very slowly because I've forgotten how to walk in heels, but I have a pair of really lovely high heels that I can wear. Okay. I yeah. see this. I see this in my future. Okay. So heels, I'm not following you there. I gave up on heels a number of years ago and I've never looked back. <laughs> I can do wedges. I'll get some glitzy wedges. Get some glitzy wedges. Some Terry de Havilland's. You'll, yeah. be, you'll be banging. <laughs> anyway, Thanks. my darling, how are you? How are you? <laughs> I'm fine. Yeah, it is gray. Remember when we said we needed to stop talking about the weather? <laughs> I know, but we just can't not. It's too pervasive. It's too much. <laughs> um, but yeah, I'm I'm fighting the good fight as you are. Um, and my remedy right now is just seeing as many friends as possible, which has been yeah. really nice that we can do that again. So I went for a really long walk with a friend and I went to a dinner party the other night and we somehow ended up singing through almost all of Joseph and the Amazing Technicolor Drink. <laughs> oh my God. Oh my God. You go to very different dinner parties yeah, for well, me. <laughs> so there were some people at the dinner party who did not know Joseph and the Amazing Technicolor Dream Coat, who I don't think were enjoying themselves, but the ones, the ones of us who did were That is the most great story I've ever heard. Uh, <laughs> so embarrassing. And the people who didn't know Joseph were like, this is a terrible musical. And I was like, I know, it's awful. It's terrible. <laughs> Oh my God, that sounds very joyful. <laughs> it was so joyful. I felt joyful for the first time, like truly joyful. I hadn't felt that way in a while through song, yeah. the joy of song, you know? Anyway. It's a profound um, joy. It is a profound joy. <laughs> <laughs> Before we get into it, let's get business out of the way. If you like, you can support us on Patreon by subscribing at patreon.com slash litfriction. You will also get access to an extra mini-sode each month. There are now 12 waiting for you there and have the chance to suggest themes. That's right. And this month's Patreon mini-sode will be released in a week's time. And the theme, which was suggested by our lovely patron Eleanor, is Dear Diary. So we'll be talking about the diaries we do or do not keep. We'll be reading to you from our diary. No, that's a lie. <laughs> but uh, we'll be talking about how we feel about diaries as literary conceits or as historical artifacts and a whole lot more. Um, so yeah, if you'd like to hear that and you're not already a subscriber, then just head to our page and sign up. But now back to business. Welcome to Minisode 27, and thanks for tuning in. The format for these minisodes between full shows is, for the next half hour-ish, we'll first have an informal conversation about the topic in hand and anything else that might come up, and then recommend some cultural things that we've enjoyed lately with the usual musical interludes chosen by Eddie. That's right. And this time, in honor of the fact that 
a whole load of our friends have been having or are about to have babies. And for me personally, in honor of Almodovar's latest release, Madres Paralelas, which I'm going to see next week, Wonderful. this minisode is dedicated to mothers in literature. Big topic. <laughs> the figure of the mother is seriously heavy with symbolism and expectation, whether she's the perfect mother or the monstrous mother, the mother we're supposed to long for or the mother we're supposed to fear. And then, of course, there's motherhood as an experience with all its complexity and ambivalences and sacrifices and joys and pleasures and the politics that surround these choices and life changes and identity shifts, which mean that none of us can be free. <laughs> <laughs> So obviously there's a lot to talk about and we definitely won't get through even half of it. So kind of consider this, I guess, like a little overture into our thoughts about all of this. And I think we should just start with something incredibly simple, which is, Carrie, do you like reading fiction about mothers and motherhood or where the maternal relationship or the maternal experience is central? Yeah, I do. I've always liked books about families and familial relationships, but particularly mothers, I'm sure, because I'm interested in the kind of female experience, I suppose. And it's been interesting to see how my relationship with this kind of literature has shifted as I've gotten older and begun to contemplate my friend's position as mothers and the idea that I might one day be a parent. And I'm not so sure that it's about like identification, like I switch from being the child to the parent, but it's more that I find myself much more interested in how books think about motherhood, especially I think now that I'm thinking a lot about whether it's something that I want to do when this relationship is ambivalent. Mm. So I was thinking, you know, recently I read Beloved by Toni Morrison, My Name is Lucy Barton by Elizabeth Strout, and I noticed that I'm thinking much more about the positions that the mothers themselves are taking on their experience, basically. Yeah, I know what you mean so, so much. There's such a big shift that comes when it all feels more proximate or possible, right? Like, yeah. I think when I was in my early 20s, I just, I just wasn't thinking about it at all. I wasn't that interested in books about families. I was really more drawn to books about big ideas, you know, yeah. which often are also about families, but I was rejecting realist literature basically yes. for a long time. <laughs> yes, you were. <laughs> I was. And now I have more room for it in my life. But yeah, I've always been interested in books that explore motherhood in a sort of different way. And I've studied Almodovar's films, which are always in some way about the maternal bond, but not necessarily the blood maternal bond, you know, just the way we can all become mothers to one another when we love people. That's like a caring element to that love. And he really queers the whole question of motherhood, which is something I've always related to very strongly. But novels like, I remember Deborah Levy's Hot Milk when I read it, which I think I read in my mid-twenties. And that book, I had a complicated reaction to one of like great admiration and kind of connection, but also it made me feel really uncomfortable because it's partly about enmeshment and duty um, between this mother and this daughter. And there's kind of a, you know, the book is interested in hysteria as a concept. And I was writing my thesis about hysteria at the time. So it kind of knitted together a lot of ideas, but in it, the narrator, who's the daughter, has the line, my love for my mother is like an ax. It cuts very deep, which I related to so strongly when that. I was thinking about my own relationship with my mother, which is a, a very fierce love, but it's a complicated love and it's a wounding love sometimes, you know? Um, and it reminds me again, actually, of so many of the matriarchal or maternal relationships in Almodovar's films. 
And then the other book about mothers that I read recently that I just adored was Niven Govindan's This Brutal House, which is about the ball scene in New York City in the 80s and 90s. I've mentioned it a lot in the show, and so have you. But the mothers in that, the ball mothers, and they speak in this powerful collective voice, this chorus. And it's a book about chosen family, and it's about non-blood lineage, but bonds that are just as powerful and just as strong. And I love that it's centering that, that the heteropatriarchal structure of maternal relationships are not the only one that have meaning, you know? Yeah, totally. I was thinking about Detransition Baby in that that category too, because that is a book that explodes this idea that a mother has to be a certain way. Yeah. And I think that can be profoundly liberating to read about. Oh my God, completely. And this is one of the things I think is the whole argument in Sean Fay's book, The Transgender Issue, about like, you know, the liberation of trans people is going to be the liberation of all society. I think that the way that queer families being more able to pursue family however they want, and the fact that the only people to bear children aren't necessarily people who identify as female, like that explodes the binary, which makes more room for all of us to redesign how we want to inhabit these roles, you know? And I think one of the things that can be so difficult about motherhood is that it's freighted with all of this political sexist stuff. And actually, I'm really here for anyone who wants to redefine what it means to be a mother or be a father. Like, I've always felt like I'd rather be a dad, truly. Like, I'd love to be a dad. Being a dad looks great. (laughs) (laughs) And that in itself is like, informed by the binary and informed by traditional family structures. And like, you just can't escape it. I I always find myself thinking like, how do we reach a place where we can think freely about what we want from parenthood? Yeah. Because even you saying that is kind of taboo. It's so interesting, isn't it? Because the argument about being a mother is like, fathers will never know the closeness that a woman has felt to her child when she pushes them out of their womb. (laughs) (laughs) And the fact that you're saying, I don't necessarily want that is in itself still kind of uncomfortable. Yeah, completely. I would love to not have to push anything out of my womb. (laughs) I feel so similarly. (laughs) I'm really up for, I'm really up for the role that's like, yeah, I mean, that's, I'm a great godmother, guys. That's, that's the, the truth. <laughs> but when we were first deciding on this theme, I kept thinking about the phrase coined by the psychologist Derek Winnicott, the good enough mother, which he first articulated in 1953, which of course was a time when the roles of parenthood were so strictly defined and women were primary caregivers and they ran the home and et cetera, et cetera. So imagine what a revolutionary concept this would have been then. And and frankly, I think it's still quite a revolutionary concept now, which is an indictment of our society. But anyway, he came up with this phrase when he was trying to explain that all of the social pressure to be this perfect mother, this perfect homemaker was backing up, not only on women who had kids, but also actually on the children themselves. Because it's an impossible thing to achieve. I mean, pretty much everything about traditional femininity is an impossible thing to achieve, right? Like it's sort of a bust basically. Mm. And it's designed to keep women back from their full potential is my personal view. But anyway, it got me wondering this phrase, good enough mother, if the most memorable mothers in fiction are either those that are totally idealized or totally demonized. And what about the mothers who are just good enough? Like, is that considered less interesting or is it something that we're only starting to see really explored in fiction recently? Like, what do you think? 
Yeah, it's interesting when you Google like memorable mothers in fiction, the list is usually mothers who are either amazing or terrible. Right. So, but I personally think it's much more interesting to read about good enough mothers or ambivalent mothers. And actually, there's definitely a trend in literature recently of novels and memoirs and films that convey a real ambivalence about the project of motherhood, which you could argue, as as I was saying, is still a great taboo in our society. And I'm thinking particularly of The Lost Daughter, which is a novella by Elena Ferrante that's just been turned into a film starring Olivia Colman and directed by Maggie Gyllenhaal. And I haven't seen the film yet, so I can't comment on that. But I read the book. You know, it's a very slim book. Not a lot happens. But what feels very revelatory about it is that it is about a mother who is truly ambivalent and maybe even regretful about having children, an academic woman who really struggled with that choice that she made in her life. Yeah, it's an incredible book. I mean, there's also like Motherhood by Sheila Hetty, which is all about trying to make this decision. And I haven't read this, but a lot of friends have pointed me towards Rachel Cusk's A Life's Work, which was a very truthful memoir about her early years of raising children while trying to be an artist. And that was published in 2001. And she was like shamed for it. Oh my God. To the point where I think she reflected on it later. I think she wrote an essay about it, about how upset people were that she had not just said that she loved having children. This is the thing. This is why this choice for women often exists in a vacuum (laughs) because you're considered, as you said, like it's considered like kind of outrageous to say, I want to be a dad or to say, I don't want to do it that way or to say, I've made this choice because I want family, but I don't enjoy the grunt work of childcare, you know? Mm. And the thing is, I think it's okay to not enjoy the grunt work of childcare. That doesn't mean you don't love your child. Caring work is hard. You Like when I cared for my father, I know it's not the same because he was dying, but like I didn't go to that work every day with a song in my heart. And that didn't mean I didn't love him. And that didn't mean I wasn't doing it out of a deep love and respect for him. But like sometimes it was really hard. <laughs> yeah. And I think there needs to be more room for that, for the reality of caring to be as complex as love is, actually, frankly. But you know what's funny about a life's work? When I was living with my goddaughter, I lived with her and her parents for about nine months when she was just learning how to talk. And her mum, who's a very close friend of mine, was reading a life's work. She would read me passages from it and it was fabulous. But the funniest thing about it was that the cover of the edition she had was like, it kind of had a soft focus picture of a baby on it. (laughs) And it was really, it had been printed to look like a very like, mummies are wonderful parenting book. (laughs) And I just thought, what publisher made that choice? (laughs) Like really, really. It's like a Trojan horse memoir. (laughs) Completely. But I was just like, either they're setting Cusk up to be vilified by Mumsnet. (laughs) Do you know what I mean? Anyway, fascinating. Um, But I actually saw the film of The Lost Daughter and I loved the novella and I really enjoyed the film a lot. It lost something for me in the translation over to that medium because the book is so much about the interiority, right? And I just, Mm. it's very hard to represent that kind of interiority in film because it's a medium that's doing something quite different, but it is great and a great interpretation of it. But anyway, definitely, I agree, more interesting to think about this ambivalence. And of course, stories that idealize or demonize are not very helpful in the end because they might be really fun, but ultimately they don't help us move beyond these very strict ideas about what parenthood should look like or motherhood in particular. Yeah. And no mothers are all good and very few are all bad. I mean, there are all bad 
out there. Do you know what I mean? Like, it's people are so complicated, aren't they? Yeah, I know what you mean. And I'm thinking back to that beautiful thing you expressed about care being as complex as love. And so many of my friends who I've seen struggle with parenting, especially in the early days, what they seem to be struggling with most is their perception of how something should be versus the reality of how it is. Yeah. It is the act itself, but it's also a kind of shame that they're somehow not good enough or they're somehow not enjoying something that they should be because of the archetypes we've been spoon-fed throughout our entire lives. Oh my God, totally. And I think the thing with parenting, and again, to make a sort of equation with also caring for someone who's dying, though they are very different, but one of the things that's similar is that you're hyper aware of the passing of time. You know, you're told with infants, like you never get this time back. And when someone's dying, you never get this time back either. You know, you're on the way to one particular (laughs) destination. So you get hung in this weird place where every choice you make, no matter how small it is in the moment, can have this catastrophic effect. You know, you miss the first word or you miss the last time he can say a full sentence at the other end of life. Mm. It's really hard. It's really hard to feel freedom in your choices when there's that much pressure around those things. And it's very hard to have access to the more philosophical or zoomed out perspective, which is, you know, we never catch all of everybody anyway. And like people are fluid and just because it's the first word doesn't mean it's the only word or just because it's the last word doesn't mean none of the words that came before happened, you know, but under that kind of duress, of course you can't think like that, let alone the sleeplessness of new parenthood. And I mean, it sounds so hard, huge respect to everyone out there doing it. (laughs) Do you think we're going to get cancelled by Mumsnet for doing a (laughs) podcast about motherhood, not being mothers ourselves? I mean, I think a lot of mums net would cancel me anyway. <laughs> I don't think I don't think that's my best arena. No offense to mums net. I think there's some useful information on there, but there's also some absolutely wild stuff going on on that website oh, as yeah. far as I can tell. <laughs> um, but also we've had some really great books on the show where there have been interesting mothers. Like I was thinking about Viv Albertine's memoir to throw away unopened, which is a really clear-sighted, very raw and I found extremely beautiful description of the dynamic between her and her mum as her mother is dying. And it's very complicated relationship, but very strong. And I was thinking also of Patrick DeWitt's novel, French Exit, which has the kind of, she's sort of almost a comedy villain, but not. And you do love her in the end, the mother in that, don't you think? Oh, totally. Yeah. Actually, we're talking about monstrous stereotypes in literature, but actually the best literature you're always finding something to love within these characters, even the worst mothers. So, And that's one of the great things about literature is like, you know, usually great characters are more than one thing. Yeah, completely. As in life, right? And what about nonfiction? So you've already mentioned The Cusk, but do you read nonfiction books about motherhood? Are you reading more of them now than before? I'm definitely reading more of them now. And I loved the Viv Albertine, for instance. I was also thinking I've started strangely representing more, well, maybe not strangely considering this is something I've been thinking about a lot, but books about parenting from all different Mm. perspectives as an agent professionally. So whether that's a kind of more scientific book about parenting or, you know, anthropological, but one I was thinking about in particular is Julia Bueno's The Brink of Being which is about Julia's experience with miscarriage and also retraining as a therapist to work with women who have suffered from pregnancy loss. And that gave me a whole new perspective on 
miscarriage and the feelings around that and the kind of silent grief that so many people I know were going through. And that's so, it's so connected to motherhood in this way that I hadn't even really fully realized. So I was so glad to have represented that book and to sort of, it made me understand a lot more. Yeah. So yeah, how about you? More books about the realities of miscarriage is so important because it is a hugely common experience in the journey of parenthood, isn't it? I mean, so many women, so many people I know who have wanted to conceive have experienced it. And yes, as you say, like the taboo about it still feels very heavy. And I hope we'll see that change in our generation, you know? Mm. I, yeah, similarly, less so than you, I think, but I'm really curious to read The Cusk in full. And I read bits of Philippa Perry's book, the book you wish your parents had read, but more because I wanted to learn more about my relationship with my own parents, I think, like to have perspectives on that. I haven't really got to the point where I'm reading them because I'm considering my own potential parenthood. But I really enjoyed the bits of Philippa's book that I read. And it's one of those kind of gently informative, but ultimately, and above all, extremely empathetic ways into thinking about parenthood and family and and everything. And there was one thing that really stuck with me, which was she says that often a parent will pull away from their kid when the kid gets to a stage of development that the parent found difficult when they were at that stage or traumatic. So it often happens at teenage time, basically, like when the child becomes a teenager and watching their child go through something, it triggers their own unresolved issues, which of course then can be terribly painful and confusing for the child because the child's having a difficult time and also being rejected by their parent. And of course, it's usually happening exactly when the kid really needs to be close to their parents. And it honestly, it's why I say constantly, relentlessly, therapy for everyone. <laughs> <laughs> because that's something that makes total sense to me. It's very difficult to be around somebody who's suffering something that you suffered that remains unresolved in your heart. But I think that when you become a parent, that's going to happen to you all the time, <laughs> you know, yeah. all the time. Like I watch parents have to face the things that they were never able to do, the things that they gave up for their kids, the difficult times in their own lives, their strong desire to protect their children from the same pains and sufferings. And then of course, the inability to do that. Like these are part of the human experience of family. And I think if you have had the chance to work through some of your own stuff before you step into that, or as you do it, it's better. So like make it affordable, make it accessible, help people work through their stuff. I mean, I used to think that the world would be better if everyone was just high on pills the whole time. And now I just, I'm like, no, the world would be better if everyone had therapy, which I think is growth, right? Therapy is pills for adults. <laughs> therapy is ecstasy. That's my, uh, when I run for office, that'll be my slogan. <laughs> I'll vote for you. <laughs> but don't you, what do you think of that? That everyone should have therapy? Yeah, that like it it should be something, ideally it is something that is infinitely more accessible and affordable so that people can have it to support them through their difficult things in life, you know? Oh, completely agree. I think I was someone who was a little bit more skeptical of the therapeutic project than you, but I have found therapy to be immensely helpful in my own life. Mm. I recognize that I can only do it because I can afford it. Um, and I've seen other people struggle to get it through the NHS and it's virtually impossible. And if we could all have more access, but also be a lot more open about seeking therapeutic help, I think we'd, we'd all be in a better position. Yeah. Agreed. Parents, children, everyone. Totally. And you know, the reason I was able to get into it when I did was because through the university, so it was very cheap. Yeah. 
and that's the thing, you know, institutions can offer that support to people. And yeah, anyway. But back to the maternal. Do you think that the boundaries of the maternal are loosening a bit as it gets easier for queer couples, for instance, to have kids and hetero couples become more interested in things like equity in their parenting and sort of thinking more broadly about what being a mother can be, basically? I think yes and no. (laughs) Though this might be because none of the queer couples I'm close to have had kids. So I guess I'm basing my first-hand experience or my like eyes-on experience only on the straight people that I'm close to who've had children. But my instinct is, and really this is just from what I've seen by being around people with new babies and being quite present for friends, is that that shit is really, really hard to shake, especially in the first couple of years. You know, I think society is still truly utterly backwards when it comes to parenting roles and what is expected. Like, you know, still fathers essentially get a round of applause for changing a single nappy or doing one school run. And for me, that's not good enough. But, you know, I know that a lot of my friends have struggled with how hard it can be to stand against that when you are utterly exhausted and incredibly anxious and everything else that comes with having a baby to care for. I think it is much harder to redefine those roles within the relationship because you're just in survival mode a lot of the time. And what I keep seeing is that true equity in parenting. I mean, this may sound controversial coming from somebody who is not a parent and there may be people listening who disagree and of course that's totally fine but what I see is that I don't think true equity is possible in the early stages because of the physical demands of childbirth and breastfeeding so you have one parent whose body is healing and also having to produce food as well as then this person having to care for the child and you've got another parent whose body hasn't gone through any of that trauma. So immediately you're not in a position of equity, right? Mm. But I do think the more that dads take on full-time childcare, the better, the more that men fight for uh, shared parental leave to be proper and decent, the better. I think it is definitely different from how it was when we were children. Although I have to be honest, it's not nearly as different as I thought it might be by this stage, if you know what I mean. Like we were born in the 80s and the 80s was fucking old school (laughs) and we should be further on, I think. But I also think that the, yeah, the social expectations of the maternal are just enormous and seem frustratingly immovable, both in terms of legislature and this whole idea of who gets parental leave from the workplace. And also, honestly, just what is deeply ingrained in the collective psyche. And I mean, I think we've seen things like this, like Stella Creasy breastfeeding her baby in the House of Commons created this extraordinary uproar. And I was thinking, really? And then I was thinking, oh, of course, it's the Houses of Parliament. (laughs) What do you expect? But like, It was very disappointing, right? It's disappointing. It is disappointing. And you'd think we would have moved on further, as you say. And if anything, we've gone backwards during the pandemic. I'm I'm seeing my friends who are mothers really, really struggling and taking on a lot more caring responsibilities and schooling responsibilities. And, you know, the research suggests that that is not just anecdotal, that it really has happened across the board. And it's depressing. I mean, it's insane that we still don't have things like shared parental leave everywhere. That seems so obvious. Yeah. But I did another book that I worked on recently, actually, is a book called We Are Family by Susan Gollenbach. And she is a researcher who studies different family forms from kind of the heteronormative kind. So whether it's like two women raising a baby, two men, you know, transgender couples, um, surrogacy, all of those different things. And they were one of the first teams to do actual empirical research on outcomes for children, basically because children in custody battles 
kids kept getting taken away from their gay mothers. Oh my god! Because judges didn't believe that that was as stable a family form. Oh my god! <laughs> yeah, and and what Susan's research has shown over and over and over again is it really doesn't matter what your family looks like as long as you are loved. Yeah. I think a lot of us kind of know and understand that, but it's very comforting to see it on the page, and I think that does hold some hope that your family can look like a lot of different things and you can still like the children are going to be all right as they say or yeah. the kids are going to be all right as they actually say <laughs> <laughs> the children will be fine as they say <laughs> the kids are all right yeah that's actually what they say isn't it <laughs> no i'm i'm with you that is uh, that sounds like a really interesting book yeah, it's fascinating and hopeful. Yeah. I mean, I'm really, truly here for a radical redefinition of the word family. I think it's I think it's high time. But I know not everybody feels that way. And I know there's a contingency of people out there who actually feel very threatened by that idea. And I understand. I do understand why. It's an old convention, the family, looking a particular way and being a particular way. Tear it all down. That's what I say. Burn it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> With that lovely thought, um, <laughs> let's take a break and we'll be back after this music for some cultural recommendations. Hello, here we are back again to give our cultural recommendations. So these are some things that we've done lately that are not reading, because who knew that sometimes we like to do things that are not reading. <laughs> um, so what's up first for you, Carrie? Well, first up for me is a film called Phantom Thread, which was directed by Ooh. Paul Thomas Anderson, which you've, you know, most of our listeners have probably seen and or heard of. But basically, I recently went back to the cinema which felt so good. Oh my God, I'm jealous. I can't wait. I'm going twice next week. <laughs> nice. <laughs> it's great. It's really wonderful. Although I forgot how annoying other people are sometimes. Oh you know, my God, the, yes. Like There were two people sitting next to me who just whispered through the entire film and I was so annoyed at them. But anyway, it's all worth it. So the first film I went to go see after Christmas was Licorice Pizza, which is also directed by Paul Thomas Anderson. It felt like kind of a minor film in some ways. It's very, it's like fun and there's a great soundtrack and it's like people hanging out in the San Fernando Valley and trying to figure out their life. And I really enjoyed it, but um, it made me just recognize how brilliant Phantom Thread, which I had seen a couple of weeks before, is. And this film stars Daniel Day-Lewis and Vicky Kripes. It's about a kind of fictional fashion designer in the 1950s in London and the woman who becomes his muse. And it's not a happy movie. It's about control and obsession and precision. And yet it's somehow also about love, even if it's a very fucked up kind of love and it gets more fucked up as the movie goes along. But I don't know. It's incredibly sumptuous. The control of the film itself, the designs, the acting by Daniel Day-Lewis, who he claims his last ever film that he's going to act in. Wow. It just, it blew me away. It was like, 
Do you know when a film, you know that the pace of a film is slow, but there's something about how it's filmed that it feels totally riveting. Every moment of that film, I wanted to watch and watch again. And I ended it, you know, slightly shifted from the person and the thing I was before I watched it. I think it's a masterpiece, basically. And I I loved it. Wow, that's so interesting. Yeah. And I don't know why I avoided seeing it for so long. I think I was worried that it would be really depressing because people talk about it as about like control and a fucked up marriage. And I thought, oh, that's going to be really hard to watch. But it wasn't hard at all. It was amazing. Do you know, that's so interesting because I tried to watch it and couldn't get on with it at all. Really? But possibly I was in the wrong setting. I was on an airplane and I just watched the first 10 minutes and was like, oh, no. <laughs> I don't want to look at Daniel Day-Lewis's face that looks like a smacked ass in this movie any longer. Uh, <laughs> do you not like him? Because no, I that, think he's amazing. Oh, okay. I, I find him extremely compelling, but I found his character very revolting. Yeah, he is quite revolting. Yeah, and I just couldn't get on with it at all. And I thought I was going to love it when I saw the trailer because it looked so sumptuous and as you described. But I just was like, ugh, I don't want to hang out with this fucking jerk. You do, <laughs> yeah, you thought. do have to hang out with him. But for some reason, I forgave that. I don't know. Mm. Well, that's the sign of a really amazing film, isn't it? And yeah. maybe I'll try again. I, I have to say the thought of trying again really doesn't appeal to me. I had quite a strong reaction against it. I don't know. Because I think you have to be on board for spending two hours with this like kind of awful man. They're enough awful men. Do you know what I mean? (laughs) It was kind of my perspective (laughs) when I was watching it on the plane. Although I think what I did watch instead was Succession, which of course is full of awful men. But I found the energy of that so much more appealing. Yeah. Well, I understand if you don't like it, but I just, I thought I wouldn't like it and I loved it. Yeah, I will try it again just for you. Maybe not yet, but I will when I've had a bit more space. (laughs) (laughs) What's your first recommendation? Well, mine actually both a a TV because everything has been a bit too COVID-y still to be that much out and about because I'm still looking after my mum. Although, as I said, I am going to the cinema twice next week because the numbers are finally coming down. So that's very exciting. But first up for me is Yellow Jackets, which is honestly the best TV I've watched in a really long time, Mm. even though it's gory as fuck, which I actually just have a way lower tolerance for the older I get. So I I must admit to sometimes watching bits of it through my fingers or from behind a pillow, (laughs) which I find weird because I used to like love Tarantino and everything. But as I matured and also felt creeped out by him, I think, yeah, there's a bit of me that's always like, do we really need to see that? Mm. But the rest of this thing is brilliant. And actually the gore is a huge part of it. And it's a huge part of it. It's aesthetic and it's kind of punk vibes. So I don't think it's, I mean, it is entirely gratuitous, but I don't think it's gratuitous in an unknowing way. And therefore I don't have a problem with it, even though I don't always want to watch it. But basically I think the pitch for this show was probably someone in a meeting room. I can just, just enjoy imagining it where someone's like, Hey, hey, hey guys, what if like the Lord of the Flies, but also Buffy and the craft? What if that? Yeah. What if that? And can some... I say that actually, I think it was because people got into a debate about Lord of the Flies and whether that would happen with if it was girls and oh, not boys. Great. And that's how the showrunners were inspired to to write the show. Isn't that that's amazing? So interesting. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, yeah, and it totally works. And basically, if you haven't seen it, the premise is that a girls' high school football team or soccer team, as they call it because they're American, is on its way to championships in this private jet and the plane crashes into the Canadian wilderness and they remain stranded there in the mountains for 19 months, which is an extremely long time. 
<laughs> and it's heavily insinuated in the first episode that they turn to cannibalism for survival and they end up dressed up in these kind of mad ceremonial robes made of animal skins and everything. You see that right at the start. So already you know where you are. And if you're in Lord of the Flies territory, you're prepared. But the story unfolds in two timelines. So one is set in 1996, which is when the crash happens. And basically everything from that period is just an amazing period piece, like the music that they use. It's just, it's great. And then the next timeline's in 2021 when the survivors are grown up. And also actually one of the things I love the most is that it's a 2021 in which COVID hasn't happened. And I loved that. I loved it. I was just like, yes, please don't let that nasty thing touch the like art that I'm experiencing yet. I'm not ready. But it stars Juliette Lewis and Christina Ricci, Tawny Cypress and Melanie Linsky, the four main characters as adults. And they are just all four of those actors having the best time. It's infectious to watch them because they are just loving it. And the younger cast, I think, are very, very well matched to them. So yeah, it's great. And also, honestly, the best soundtrack of 90s music, very heavy on the grunge. And uh, they have all of their songs are up on Spotify. But also genuinely the first TV show to make me laugh out loud in a really, really long time. <laughs> and it really, it's very funny. I, I almost think it could be funnier, actually. And I know you've seen it. Do, what do you think? Oh, yeah, I loved it. And actually, I surprised myself because I am very squeamish about gore and horror. I'm just very easily scared, as you know. So I was slightly resisting it. But then I was like, how can I not watch a TV show about a girl's soccer team in the 90s? Exactly. Like, it's just made for me. And I love it. I wish it had a little more soccer, actually. I know, that, that, that was the be- most carry fucking <laughs> takeaway from Yellow Jackets. But it's like they could do so much more with the soccer. You know, I don't even know what position most of them play. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know that Jackie's the captain. Jackie's the captain, but I don't know I don't know where she is on the field. Mm. All you know is that Van is the goalie, really. Yeah. And that maybe Ty is like on the wing or something based on that one scene they did of them playing soccer. And wouldn't they have been playing soccer in the wilderness sometimes? You'd think they had a ball on that plane, Yeah, exactly. <laughs> More than one ball. <laughs> no, no, but I love it. And it's so good. And the older actors are so good. And... It doesn't take itself too seriously, which I think is great. There is something kind of pulpy about it, but that is what makes it better. Yeah. And it's also honestly one of the most interesting like remakes of a reinterpretations of a book or something that I've seen in ages. And I feel like on the whole, I'm not that into that as a genre. I'm like, can we tell new stories? Can we make new things? But this is the first one in ages that I've been like, no, this is great. This has earned its place, you know? I really enjoyed it. Although I did have crazy dreams while I was watching it and would wake up in the middle of the night stressed about something that had happened in (laughs) Yellow Jackets. I really (laughs) put myself through the rigor there, but glad I did. What's your second recommendation? So my second recommendation is another TV show, which has already aired in the States, but has just been released in Britain on Stars Play, which I didn't even know was a, was a <laughs> channel, but you can get it through Amazon. I don't know. But anyway, it's Station Eleven, which is a 10-part miniseries based upon the novel by Emily St. John Mandel. And I've only watched the first three episodes, but I loved this novel. And I always worry a little bit when I really love a novel about an adaptation. But so far, I just... I think this adaptation is really great. And one of the reasons I think it's great is because they've departed a bit from the novel, which I think is always a good sign because they're really thinking about what it means to adapt to a new medium. 
And it's weird that I'm enjoying it so much because it's basically about a pandemic that wipes out 99% of the population. But what I always loved about that book was it's kind of the opposite of most post-apocalyptic novels because it's about finding hope after the end of the world and the power of art and you know, what connects us rather than what divides us, but not in a schmaltzy way. And I think so far that the TV show is doing a really, really good job with it. And it takes its time. You know, it's not Yellow Jackets, which is like plot point, plot point, plot point, like conversation, crazy song. You know, it's it's a lot of contemplative walking through scapes and people having conversations and, you know, slow building love stories because it skips around in time as well. You kind of see the past before this pandemic happens, follow a few characters and then follow some of those characters like 20 years after the world Mm. has kind of collapsed. But it's wonderful. And really at the heart of it is this relationship between a girl named Kirsten, who's eight years old and performing in a play sort of the night before most people get wiped out. And this guy called Jeevan, who ends up with her and basically saves her life by taking her to his brother's apartment in Chicago where they kind of lock themselves in while the world falls apart. And it's a really, really beautiful relationship. And the girl who plays Kirsten, this eight-year-old, her name's Matilda Lawler. I haven't seen her in anything before, but she's one of those child actors where you're like, how do you know how to act like this? I mean, it's almost distracting how good she is. Wow. She's just amazing. And I think it's really beautiful adaptation. So I can't wait to keep watching it. Oh, I've been reading about it and thinking I can't wait to see it. Yeah. I'm I'm really, really enjoying it. What is your next recommendation? This one is a very different mood. It's, I guess we're moving from fiction to nonfiction. So this is this series called Couples Therapy, which Ooh, yeah, oh I've heard about God. this. It's so good, Carrie. It's so it's real couples therapy sessions in New York City with the psychologist and psychoanalyst Dr. Orna Guralnik. And It is completely compulsive and fascinating watching. We're already on episode four and just I'm completely hooked. And it's obviously it's edited together to make it very compelling. There's none of the like surly or pained silences that I think are probably pretty common in couple sessions and just generally in therapy, you know, you're not talking the whole time. And I'm sure also that there's like a certain amount of self-selection that happens because the kind of people who are willing to televise their therapy sessions you know, you're probably seeing a certain amount of extroversion just as a baseline. Mm -hmm. But still, with all of that in mind, it comes across as just being very raw, very genuine people, you know, and it's incredibly tender. I mean, it's sort of, it is, I guess, reality TV, but it doesn't feel like it. It doesn't feel like it fits into that genre, really, because of when we think of reality TV, I think we think of a lot of manipulation, right? We think of a lot of like producers writing scripts and storylines and stuff, which obviously isn't happening here. Although they do, the film crews do go into the couple's homes and there's some footage that you're like, how the hell did you do that? (laughs) Or, okay, you must've set that up. Like one woman who has abandonment issues, who, um, texts her husband all the time when he's at work and it stresses him out. And there's a shot of her at home, like composing a number of texts being like, where are you? Where are you? Where are you? Which you think obviously that must've been partly staged, but you kind of forgive it for all of that because when you're in the room with the couples and the therapists, these sessions are just electric really, because you watch her make progress with some really be unable to make progress with others. And I just think it makes it so 
kind of clear how completely inadequate we can be at understanding one another, even if we've been together for 20 years, even if we know each other really well. And in fact, sometimes the longer you're with someone, the worse the communication gets because you make all these assumptions that you know each other. And actually, of course you don't because human beings are constantly changing. And I find watching it, I'm just really humbled actually by the fragility of us as creatures and the fact that we're all so full of love and we're also so full of pain and contradiction and we don't know how to handle ourselves a lot of the time. And like the tender act of loving brings out the best in people, but it brings out the worst and it touches on the deepest traumas. And I think it's fascinating. I'm also just incredibly pro anything that demystifies the therapy process, because I think it's great for people to see anyone with preconceptions about it, to just see what's really going on there, you know, and you can watch it on the BBC. So good old repressed England is catching up (laughs) to the idea that therapy has huge positive potential for anyone and everyone. That's really your theme today. It is, it is, it is. Yeah, it is. But yeah, I just, I think the other thing about it, that even if you can't afford therapy, even if you're not really interested in it, if you watch the show, you will learn a lot. And by being a fly on the wall in these sessions, you can bring the insight into your own life. You can watch these couples and go, oh my God, I do that. Or my partner does that. Or that horrifies me. But wait a second, I'm in a relationship where that happens. What does that mean? You know, you can do all of that kind of work for yourself through watching. And then of course, there's the much less high-minded register, which is just that other people's relationships are fascinating. And this program appeals to the voyeuristic part of all of us, but it does so in a way that doesn't leave me feeling grubby. I'm really interested to watch the rest of it. There's two series. That sounds so good. I'm going to watch it. It sounds like maybe it's the filmic equivalent to Esther Perel's podcast in some ways, which I love. Yeah, 100%. Well, that's a very long show. And that is all the time we had for today. I mean, who knew we'd have a lot to say about motherhood? Um, <laughs> thank you, as ever, to the wonderful Daphne Conisus for editing. Literary Friction is available as a podcast to download on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts and to stream on nts.live. You can check us out on Twitter and Instagram. You can also get in touch with us on email, litfriction at gmail.com. If you have a spare minute, please rate and review us on iTunes. It makes a huge difference and helps us reach new listeners. We'll be back in a couple of weeks for a show all about East Side Voices. Until then, I'm Octavia Bright with Carrie Plitt, and this is Literary Friction. <laughs> <laughs>